Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Please join me in a brief moment of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, once again, Lord, as we prepare to walk through this passage and as we desire and seek to understand um, what is this new covenant community that you have formed through the death and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. What is this new covenant community that Christ purchased with his own blood? What does it mean to be a part of it, Lord God? So, Father, we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, walk us through this text. We pray that you would enable us to rightly divide your word. And, Father, ultimately, we pray that you would give us a a more magnificent view of your person and of your glory and of your sovereignty and of your goodness and of your church. Lord, we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen. So when we talk about the uh, New Testament church, when we refer to the church uh, in, uh, in our present day and age, we need to understand that the church, the New Testament church, is both uh, distinctly new from the Old Testament. It is distinctly new from Israel, yet at the same time, the New Testament church is a continuation of Old Testament Israel. And in some ways, it is not new. The New Testament church, first of all, is formed through and because of the person of Jesus Christ. So to be sure, 
in that sense, the church is new. The church as we understand it today, the church as it exists today, uh, does not come into existence until the New Testament, until after the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church as a whole and on every believer. Specifically, I would pinpoint Pentecost as the creation of the New Testament church. But the differences between the church, the differences between the church and Old Testament Israel are grounded in the new kind of relationship. So when we talk about the differences, why are there differences? What are those differences based on? Um, what brings about those differences between the New Testament church and Old Testament Israel? And those differences are grounded on the new kind, the new kind of covenant relationship that God has with his people today, as opposed to the kind of covenantal relationship that God had with his people in the Old Testament. So, for example, the relationship that God had with the Old Covenant, the Old Testament covenant people, first of all, was a conditional relationship, right? We talked about that in terms of, at least in terms of the covenant of law, it was a conditional relationship, right? We saw that from uh, Exodus 19. God says, uh, I will be your God and you will be my people if you will keep all of the words of this law. Now, it's not entirely conditional. That is, God's relationship with Israel is not entirely conditional because it's also rooted in his uh, covenant that he makes with Abraham, which we know is an unconditional covenant. So in the Old Testament, the relationship God has with Israel is both conditional and unconditional uh, to some degree. But nonetheless, with regards to the law, it is a conditional covenant. And in the New Testament era, God's relationship with the New Testament church is purely a unconditional covenant relationship. That is because of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 that, God, that Christ inaugurates with his blood, we are and forever will be in a covenantal relationship with God, and there is nothing that can break that. Part of what we get our biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's why Jesus says that, that no one can snatch his people from his hand. That all that the Father comes to me, he says in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will not lose one. Regardless of what they may or may not do, if they are born again, regenerated, if they have been brought into union with Christ by faith and are in a new covenant relationship with God, that can never be severed. Secondly, under the old covenant, God's relationship uh, with the, the, the people of Israel 
Only Jews could participate in the covenant community. You had to be a Jew. Now, you could convert to Judaism. You didn't have to be an ethnic Jew. You could certainly convert to Judaism. But nonetheless, only Jews could participate in the Old Testament covenant community. In the New Testament church, it is Jews and Gentiles. And you do not have to convert to Judaism. Thirdly, both believers and unbelievers in the Old Testament covenant community were inside the covenant community. That was the whole point of the prophets, or at least that was one significant responsibility that they had. We're constantly evangelizing fellow Jews inside the covenant and saying, know the Lord, stop worshiping Baal. But God prophesies in Jeremiah 31 that when the new covenant is inaugurated, we will all know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And fourthly, there was this constant sacrificing of animals for sin under the old covenant relationship that God had with his people. However, under the new covenant relationship that God has with his people, God remembers our sins no more. There is no longer a sacrifice for sin because Christ is that once for all sacrifice. Thus, in some ways, the church is distinctly new and different from God's relationship with his people under the old covenant. But in other ways, there is continuity. In other ways, there is similarity between God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament and God's relationship with his people in the New Testament. For instance, I'll give you four. Number one, the new covenant is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants, not the abrogation of them. In other words, when God establishes the new covenant, He doesn't do so because he simply decides arbitrarily, I just want to do something new. I'm just tired of these old covenants. Let's just out with the old. Let's try something new. Rather, the new covenant is the fulfillment. It is the culmination. It is the capstone of all of the Old Testament covenants. Secondly, Old Testament believers were saved in the Old Testament by placing their faith in God and in the word of God. From Adam all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation, salvation has always been by faith alone, in God alone, and in the word of God. Paul uses Abraham as the primary example in Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3. He refers back to Genesis 15 where God takes Abraham out and says, look at the stars, and if you can number them, so will your descendants be. And Abraham believed God, and based on his belief, it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, you could go back even farther and go to Noah. Noah was saved simply by believing God. Noah, there's going to be a flood. You need to build a massive boat. And Noah says, okay, I believe you, and I trust you, and I'm going to do what you say. Faith in God and in the promises of God. Thirdly, God promised to be the God of Abraham and 
his offspring. And per Galatians chapter 3, God is still the God of Abraham and of all his offspring, whom, according to Paul in Galatians chapter 3, is Christ and all those who are in union with Christ by faith. So there is this continuity between the Old and the New Testament. And fourthly, church in the New Testament. We talk about the church. When we read about the church in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. Okay, it's the Greek word ekklesia. And that Greek word literally means the assembled ones or the called out ones. That's what it means to be the ekklesia of God. That same Greek word in the New Testament appears in the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 77 times. 77 times. One notable example is in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. Here, listen to what Moses says to the people of Israel. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. The Greek word there is ekklesia. That's what the Septuagint reads. Literally, you could read this out of the midst of the fire on the day of church, on the day we gathered for church, on the day in which we did church, on the day in which we assembled the day in which we were all called out of our homes to gather together for the hearing, the reading of God's word, and for corporate worship. Thus, there has always been, here's the point, there has always been one people of God. One people of God, one church, one ecclesia, one believing community from beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. The question is, how then does this newfound relationship with Jews and Gentiles come into being? How does that happen, and what does that look like? Looking at our text in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this, therefore, now, first of all, whenever you see the word therefore, you always want to look back to see what it's there for. It's a good hermeneutical rule. Because it means that the writer is referring to something that he has just said. It means that what he's about to say is somehow directly connected to what he has just said. And thus, Paul is referring to, uh, to the prior section, I think namely he's referring to verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Grace and faith are gifts of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, Paul is wanting to remind his Gentile readers, because that's who he's writing to. This is the church in Ephesus. 
He wants to remind his Gentile readers right at the very beginning that they, like the old people of Israel, the Old Testament people of Israel, are in a relationship with God, not because they earned it, not because they deserved it, but simply because of God's grace and mercy and love. That was true in the Old Testament. That is true in the New Testament. So he wants them to understand this as, they, as he moves forward, as he's about to describe this newfound relationship that Gentile believers have with the God of the Old Testament, he says, let's be clear about something. God didn't choose you because you were such wonderful people. Just like God didn't choose a people of Israel because they were such wonderful people. God chose a people out of the world simply because he is rich in mercy and grace. And so he goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, that is Gentiles, by what is called the circumcision, referring to Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you Gentiles, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul now wants to remind them. He says, remember that there was a time for thousands and thousands of years, you were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. You were outside the covenant promises. You were aliens and strangers to the things of God, living, wandering in darkness, and without hope in the world. We sometimes forget that. That as we go through the Old Testament, as we have spanned thousands of years in this series, looking at all of the various covenants throughout the Old Testament, that God was the God of the nation of Israel. Every other nation, every other people group wandered in darkness and did not know the one true God. And God says, well, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, I guess you could say that God says to the church in Ephesus through the apostle Paul, that was you. That was you wandering in darkness. But now, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice Paul's emphasis on how it is these Gentiles have been brought into this covenant community. How it is these Gentiles are now participants with the covenant promises that were given to Israel from the Old Testament he says at the very end, you have, brought, bought, you have been brought near by or through the blood of Christ. We talked about that last week in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 to 17. 
That is, the inaugurating and establishing of the new covenant. The establishing of the new covenant community. The new covenant people of God is inextricably linked to the atoning work of Christ on the cross. That is, without the death of Christ, without the shedding of Christ's blood, there is no new covenant community. It is the death of Christ. It is the blood of Christ that forms and establishes this new covenant community in God and establishes this new covenant relationship that we are now able to participate in with the living God. Without Christ's death on the cross, there is no new covenant, and there is no new covenant community, which would mean that all of us Gentiles would still be excluded from the covenant promises of Israel and from being in relationship with God. He goes on to say in verses 14 to 16, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It's interesting that those who like to argue against the uh, so-called replacement theology you know, Paul uses that kind of language, doesn't he? That he might create in himself one new man in place of. He is replacing the two with one. One new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The question is, what is this dividing wall of hostility? What does he mean that Christ broke down this dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? Especially when we consider the fact that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Truly, I tell you, not one dot or iota will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. What does Paul mean when he says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances? Well, we know that Paul does not mean that with the coming of Christ, the Old Testament is simply thrown out. Paul certainly does not mean that. We know that because Paul says things like Romans chapter 3, verses 27 to 31. Paul says this, that what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works. By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles as well? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the 
uncircumcised through faith. Both Jews and Gentiles justified by faith alone. But then verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul will later say in Romans chapter 7 that the law is not bad. He would not have known what it meant to not covet if it were not for the law. And then he says in Romans 7, 12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In fulfilling the law, Christ broke down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, which is created by the law. So it is not the law that is hostile. It is the message of the law that creates this hostility between Jews and Gentiles. You see, because the law communicated one clear message to the Gentiles. Stay out. You are unclean. Keep your distance. That was offensive to the Gentiles. You see, the Gentiles in the Old Testament could never understand, why can't we intermarry? I mean, there's all kinds of gods. We have our gods. You have your god, I guess. If you want to limit yourself to just one. But look, we're okay with worshiping yours. But the Jews said, no. You cannot intermarry with our sons and daughters. We cannot have any kind of relationship with you because there is only one true God and you worship false gods and you are unclean and you are outside the covenant community and you must keep your distance. Thus, Christ fulfilling the purpose and demands of the law removes the hostility that existed between Jews and and Gentiles. Christ does this according to verses 15 and 16 of Ephesians. Look there. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Right? So there's the first reason that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And here's the second reason might reconcile us both, that is, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Notice again the emphasis on how this happens, Paul states, through the cross. Christ's death establishes the new covenant within which we are able to enter into a relationship with the living God. His death obviously also pays for the sins of those who are brought into this new covenant community in fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, which says that all those inside the new covenant will know the Lord. And God says, and I will remember their sins Thus, Christ had to die on the cross. If the new covenant community was going to be comprised of people, Jews and Gentiles, who are sinless, that was never going to happen under the old covenant 
law. There had to be a new kind of all-sufficient sacrifice. But then Paul says in verse 19, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So then, so then, in light of this glorious truth that Christ inaugurates and establishes the new covenant and the new covenant community in his blood, you are no longer strangers and you are no longer outside of the covenant community, but have been brought into an eternal covenant relationship with God. You are fellow citizens, not second-class citizens, not stepchildren of God, but you stand on an equal playing field. You are fellow Citizens, the covenant community and the covenant promises that the Gentiles were once alienated from, they are now full participants in. That's what Paul's point is. All of those promises that were given to Israel that we read about in the Old Testament, Paul says that if you are a believer in Christ, if you have been brought into union with Christ by faith, all of those promises are yours. You will inherit all that God has promised to his covenant people. All of the promises given to Israel are given to the Gentiles who are in union with Christ by faith. Thus, the new covenant community is the church. The new covenant community is the church which is comprised of all true believers, both Jews and Gentiles throughout the ages who are in union with Christ by faith. That has always been the means of salvation. In the Old Testament, believers were simply saved by putting their faith in the Messiah who would come, I believe God, and I believe he will send a Messiah, and I am trusting in that future Messiah to make all things right. They were saved by putting their faith in the Messiah that would come, and today we are saved by putting our faith in the Messiah that has come. Always been by faith alone in the Messiah. The new covenant community is the church comprised of all true believers, both Jews and Gentiles throughout the ages. This is often referred to as the invisible church, the invisible ecclesia, the invisible assembly, the invisible called out ones by God as opposed to the visible ecclesia. The visible 
called out ones, the visible church. By invisible, I do not mean it is not in the sense that we cannot see the evidence of the church, but that we cannot fully know as God knows. We cannot fully know in the way that God knows who among the baptized are truly a part of the one true church and have been truly regenerated, have had their sins truly forgiven and removed forever, and that they truly know the Lord. The visible church, visible churches, the visible ecclesia, the visible assemblies, the visible called out ones are what we call local congregations. These are the called out ones who assemble together for corporate worship. Thus, each local congregation, here's the point, here's the drive home, each local congregation, each visible church is to be a microcosm and a reflection of the invisible church. The visible church, let me say that again, the visible church is to be a microcosm and a reflection of the invisible church. Thus, since those who are a part of the invisible church, that is the new covenant community of God, are regenerate, they are born again. Because they have the laws of God written upon their hearts, they have this internal desire to live for the glory of God. Because those who are part of the invisible church truly know God. They are in a saving relationship with God, and their sins have been forever forgiven, right? Because that's how you become a part of the invisible church. That's how you come into that new covenant relationship with God. All of that is outlined in Jeremiah 31. Since these things are true of the invisible church, then those inside, listen, the visible church. Those inside the visible church, as best as we can ascertain, should also be regenerate. They should also have the laws of God written upon their hearts. They should also truly know the Lord. They should also have had their sins once for all Why Jesus will teach in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following, right? Many of you know that section of the, the passage on church discipline. I prefer the passage on church accountability. But there Jesus will say, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, great, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, go to your brother with two or three witnesses so that every word may be Established on the testimony of these witnesses. If he hears you, great. If he doesn't, he will say, then bring it before the court. And if he still refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Because those were individuals 
were considered to be outside of the covenant community of God. Not saved. Gentiles, actually in the mind of a Jew, Gentiles were tax collectors. They despised the covenant. And if you ask a first century Jew, you know, what's the difference between a tax collector and a catfish? have said one is just one is a scum sucking bottom feeder and the other is just a crook because they despised tax collectors these were individuals who were working for the enemy against the people of God Jesus ministered in the Old Testament era Jesus lived ministered in the Old Testament era because the New Testament era does not begin until after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And thus, when he says that, in that time, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, he is using language that he knows his audience is going to understand. These are people who are outside the covenant community of God. Jesus' point is that for the New Testament church is that if someone is behaving, if someone is behaving like those who are outside the covenant community of God, if someone is living their life, if they are behaving in a way that looks as though they are outside the invisible church, then they are to be put outside the visible. Because the visible church is to be a microcosm and a reflection of the invisible church. In fact, Paul instructs the church in Corinth to do this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Go there later and read it from the beginning. It's like the first 15, 12 or 15 verses. He reminds them that he's heard that there's someone living among them that is living in open sexual immorality, and yet you all are tolerating it. Why? He'll say, don't you know that a little leaven will leaven the entire lump? This person is to be put outside the church. Because if they are going to live their lives like an unbeliever, then they must be treated like an unbeliever. But of course, we know that Paul isn't saying outside the physical church that they shouldn't be allowed to attend church, that only believers, as far as we can tell, should be allowed to attend church. We know he doesn't mean that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 and following, there where he's giving this whole lesson on the gift of tongues and prophecy and how it's to be used within the church, one thing that he says to them is, look, whenever you speak in tongues, there needs to be an interpreter because if there isn't, what's going to happen when unbelievers are among you? They're going to think you're out of your mind. Paul assumes that when the church gathers for corporate worship, that there will and ought to be unbelievers who are there hearing the word of God and hearing the gospel proclaimed. So then what does he mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he says they ought to be put outside the church? Well, let me just tell you that all of this, talking about the new covenant community, has enormous implications for baptism, the Lord's Supper, 
church membership, and biblical community. What does that mean? What does that look like? Biblical community. We'll talk about these in the next uh, three weeks to come. But quickly, let me just state that church membership is a way for the elders to determine as best we can whether a person is inside the new covenant community. We can't see faith. We can't see inside someone's heart. But God has called us to be fruit inspectors. And the elders have the highest responsibility of being the fruit inspectors and the protectors of the flock. And so that's what church membership is all about. Because whether a person is inside the new covenant community, the invisible church, they must be, if they're, gonna, if they're inside the visible church, they ought to all also be inside the invisible church. In the end, in the end, here's, here's the point. There is one people of God. There is one church. Comprised of both Believing Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, black and white, poor and rich. There is one church throughout all of eternity which Christ purchased with his own blood. And those inside the new covenant community are there if you are inside the new covenant community, if you are inside the invisible church, the invisible ecclesia, the invisible called out ones, know that you are there not because you earned it, not because you deserve it, but simply because God is rich in grace and mercy and love. Gracious God, merciful Father, we stand before you this morning and we are amazed by your grace and your love and goodness. We are so undeserving of all that you have done for us. Father, we pray that as we depart from this place this morning, that we take this glorious truth with us. Father, we pray that you would enable us to live out the commandments of your Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.1, that we would live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel to which we have been that we would strive to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of all that you have done for us and of your amazing grace and goodness and love. Father, we pray all of this in Christ's precious and holy name.